Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is our final week in this 11-week study, and I trust that you have been strengthened and encouraged as we've worked our way through these chapters. It goes without saying that we left about 90% of the meat behind, so we are going to have to go back to this someday. But uh, my prayer as we wrap up is that every one of us will walk away more amazed at the Word of God than before. Amazed by its truths, its pure, honest, undeniable truths, amazed by its relevance, amazed by its power, we know that the Word of God changes us. It changes people. It does for us and it does through us what we just cannot do for ourselves. Two weeks ago, we looked here in, in chapter 5 and chapter 4, we looked at the big theme of sanctification. That is that, that increasing in holiness and devoted service to God. And then last week, we looked at the reality and the impact of Christ's return, the rapture. You understand that these are two major pillars in the Christian life. And it's essential that we understand the grand importance of Christian living. And that is a holy life that is looking forward to Christ's return. It's very simple. These are two major pillars of the Christian life. And really, this is the Christian mission in a nutshell. Devoted to God until His Son returns. And we understand, especially as we work our way through this book, we see that the growing, maturing Christian is defined by a heightened value of holiness and a life-shaping awareness of the imminence of Christ's return. These points largely define the theme of our study, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls us into His own kingdom and glory. So having laid the foundation these past couple weeks, the foundation of sanctification and the rapture, Paul now gives us this rapid-fire list of exhortations, of, of commands and orders for the church to follow. So let's read them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verses 12, verse 12, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything closely, carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 
I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If we ever wondered what a healthy, properly functioning church looks like, we just got a pretty good picture of one right there. And of course, this isn't a complete, a total description, but that's a, that's a pretty detailed picture of a role model church family, which you may recall is exactly what Paul said in chapter 1, this church was. These Thessalonian believers were exemplary to all of the region, all of Macedonia. A healthy, exemplary church, as we learn in these few verses again, is a place where there is respect, peace, patience, consistent joy in prayer and thanksgiving, etc. And that's what we want for our church family. That's what we want for our homes. Let's pray, and then we'll study God's Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak wonderfully to us. Speak powerfully, speak lovingly and tenderly, speak in a way that moves us, Lord. We acknowledge the wisdom of your word, that it is indeed inspired by God himself, that it is your word which you use to communicate truth to us. You communicate yourself to us through the word. So, Lord, help us to hear with hearts that understand in a grace-inspired will that purposes to obey. We look forward to what you will do in these next few minutes. We pray that you will be exalted, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, again, we see that on the backdrop of Paul's teaching on sanctification and the rapture, we now come to the end of this letter to the young believers at Thessalonica, and we see Paul giving, again, this rapid-fire short list of Christian commands. They're all straightforward, but they are simple and essential behaviors that Christians must live by. Now, to be honest with you, I read through these verses again in preparation for today, and, and I thought to myself, this portion of this letter sounds a lot like a mother hollering out the front door to her children as they're leaving for summer camp or something. Don't forget to brush your teeth. Don't forget to make your bed. Don't hurt your counselor, you know, etc. They, they, all these lists of these things that moms have as reminders for their children because they love them and because they care so much. And Paul gives this list just bang, bang, bang. Don't forget to do all these things. Perhaps he was short on time. Perhaps he was running out of parchment. Whatever the reason is, he gives this rapid list that really expresses his heart. We see that he's squeezing in every last ounce of caring counsel. Like that mom at the front door, we see in Paul a, a deep sense of friendship and fond affection, a strong strong desire to know that the believers were doing well spiritually. So let's work our way through this final to-do and to-be list, and may the Holy Spirit open our eyes to the importance of each one of these exhortations. Verse 12, again, Paul says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. 
and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. There is the first charge, the first last-minute command. Now, there are two sides to this coin. Of course, most people see it from the side of the congregation, and that is they are to do two things, appreciate your church leaders and esteem them highly in love. This is indeed the primary focus of these two verses. However, before we go there, we also know that there's another side to this coin. There's another perspective, and that is the elders of the church perspective. We learn from this verse that there are things that we as pastors and elders must do. Three things. Work diligently. That means there's to be no slackers in the eldership. We must oversee in the Lord. That's an incredible three-word phrase there. In the Lord, that means we, we don't get to, uh, we, we have no authority to lead in our own opinion or for our own agenda. We must lead in the strength of and according to the Lord Himself. And three, we must give the instruction of the word rightly. If you've been in Awana, you know what verse comes to mind, 2 Timothy 2.15. We are called to accurately handle the word of truth, to rightly divide the word of truth. I want you to know how grateful we five elders are here at the church for your prayers that we would do these three things well. We heard Paul say at the end of the chapter, brethren, pray for us. So back to the other side of the coin, Paul gives two simple exhortations to the church family as a whole, and I'll be quick to note that this includes the elders as well. Each elder has an obligation also to fulfill these two commands toward the other elders because we recognize very much so that we are all under the God-ordained leadership of the shepherds of the church, the under-shepherds. So the first command that Paul gives here to the church family as a whole is to appreciate godly leadership. So let's define godly leadership. Well, again, the verse just defined it in three specific ways. We appreciate those who work faithfully and diligently in the church, those who have spiritual authority and responsibility over the church, and those who teach in the church. And of course, elders or pastors, it's the same biblical word there, are the only position in the church that fits all three of those qualifications. So I simply propose that this is indeed directed toward the pastors, the elders of the church. Paul says, appreciate your spiritual leaders, be grateful. And secondly, esteem them very highly in love. Those last two words, in love, define the actual carrying out of the command. We see that Paul is referring to a loving respect and a high view. I have to think that Paul is specifically teaching this point because he heard something like this more than once. Man, I can't stand that church leader, but I'll respect him because I have to, because I know he's a, a, a leader in the church. And Paul is no dummy. He says, our respect for the leaders of the church needs to be carried out in the attitude of love, not just Christian duty. So there's an interesting tagline on the end of the sentence, though, and that is, because of their work. Appreciate and respect them highly because of their work. And that begs the question, what if an elder isn't doing the work? What if he isn't laboring diligently? And there's the idea here of labor, of toil, sacrificial, like a farmer in the field, 
the sun up to sundown, sweat on the brow. So what if, a, what if a leader in the church isn't laboring diligently or isn't ruling in the Lord according to the Scriptures? What, what if we see that the, the leaders are pushing their own agenda or teaching much of their own opinion, etc.? Or what if a leader is not teaching according to the Word? Again, we hear personal opinion, popular psychology that we just don't find in Scripture. The question is, do we have to appreciate and respect that person? I'll leave that to you to discuss in your salt groups. The point is, elders have three very specific duties in the church, responsibilities that they must be doing, and the church family should appreciate and respect them for that servant leadership. Let's move on. Verse 13 continues. Live in peace with one another. Now, we all know this is Mother's Day. Are there any mothers here who would say, the end of verse 13 is all I ask for this Mother's Day. Let there be peace in my home. Let me speak to the children for a moment. And of course, that's, that's all of us. But children, do you recognize how timely and important these words in Scripture are? If you want to bless your mom today, do everything you can to live in peace with your family. We'll look at that next uh, verse in a minute, but we see there that it all says, don't be unruly. Help each other. Be patient with each other. Don't return evil for evil. That is, don't hit back. Don't spit back. Don't yell back. Instead, always look for what's best for the other person in your family. Is it just me or is this, this, like, this short list like the mother's ultimate dream for family life? We do notice in context that this phrase, live in peace with one another, does come on the tail end of Paul's exhortation to appreciate and respect godly leadership. This is all tied together. And we could safely assume by, by virtue of the sequence of statements here in verse 13 that there was some element some degree of strife between the church leaders and the congregation at that time. And Paul says it's not right. It should not be that way. You must live in peace. We notice that this isn't a recommendation or even a goal. It's a command. Live in peace with one another. Let me just say, and I know that I speak on behalf of all the other elders, how grateful and blessed I am by the peace and goodwill that exists between our church family and the servant leaders of the church. I want you to know how grateful I am to feel appreciated and respected by the church family. And I know that Ruth feels the same way. And that is a very integral part of this whole calculation. And I sincerely hope that you sense the same in return from your church leaders, a respect, a gratitude, a love, an honor, a value for one another. We see that by the grace of God woven throughout our church family. Far from perfect, but there is a deep sense of respect and appreciation woven all throughout our church family that we would do well to treasure, to protect, and to keep promoting.
how we thank God for this blessing. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. The live in peace in verse 13 is being defined further in verses 14 to 15. This section here of four commands is more than just a string of random thoughts that Paul uttered off the cuff. Even just a brief study of these reveals that Paul is actually addressing four subgroups in the church, four types of hurting and needy people in the church. And I'll be very quick to say that we have all been in or are in one or more of these groups in the church. And that is because we are all needy people. I've only attended here for about 16 years, but I have yet to see one perfect, all-sufficient person walk through these doors. Bottom line, as we all know, is we need each other. So here is group number one in Paul's list, the unruly. How many of you are in this group? No. Paul says, admonish the unruly. Those who are living without rule, the undisciplined. It has reference to the idle or the lazy, the troublemaker. And this is the exact same Greek word, the word um, admonish, that is used back in verse 13 where Paul said to appreciate the leaders who give you instruction. That is the exact same Greek word as admonishment. And interesting that he would remind the church to appreciate corrective teaching. That's hard for any of us to hear. But Paul wisely warns us, we must hear correction. The, this is cautionary teaching that we're looking at here. Corrective instruction. The word means to reprove gently. A mild rebuke or warning. Here in verse 14, we see that we are all called to help guide one another in the right way of the Lord. Lest any of us suffer and cause others to suffer, to break the peace due to our negligence or disobedience of the word. This goes back to what we reflected on a few weeks ago. How deeply do you and I care about the spiritual well-being of each other in our church family? When we see someone clearly walking in disobedience to the words and the ways of God, have we developed a relationship that is so strong that we have earned the right to speak admonition into each other's lives? Bold but gentle truth and correction. Who does Paul again tell to admonish the unruly? Is that instruction given to the leaders of, of the church? No. It is given to the whole church family. We all have a responsibility to lovingly, boldly, and gently speak corrective and guiding truth into each other's lives. That goes so against the grain of culture. And it's not just the grain of culture. It's the grain of self, the grain of pride, etc. But this is part of our calling. Scripture commands us, all of us, to admonish the unruly as part of living in peace together. Secondly, second group, we have the faint-hearted. This is those who are lacking courage and hope. 
Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. The King James says, comfort the feeble-minded. These are the people who are fearful, hurting, discouraged, depressed. We've all been there. The people who have no vision and no desire to keep on. Their heart faints when they see the upward path forward toward Christ. It grows weak when they see the call to holiness. Paul says, encourage them, infuse them with courage, give them a reason and a desire to stand up and start running again. We've studied this word encourage much over the past few weeks throughout this, this book. Let me ask again, let me ask, why is our first inclination, yeah, why is our first inclination to avoid discouraged people? Let's be honest, it's a natural inclination. It is a natural first response. It is natural to avoid those who are suffering from depression, those who want to give up. It's natural. But as believers, we know what? It is not spiritual. It is spiritual to go after them, to minister to them, to walk beside them as an encourager. We've all been there, standing in the need of prayer. Paul says, go after those people. Speak words of comfort and hope. And don't just talk. Behave towards them. Serve them in such a way that it gives them the courage and the desire to do what is right. This is one of the chief marks of a genuine, vibrant Christian. This is one of the attributes of a healthy church family is that they not only feel bad for those who are going through very difficult times, but they also know how to come alongside them and strengthen them. Are we willing to open our spiritual and emotional and mental and even sometimes physical wallet so that we can invest into the lives of those who are hurting? How ready are you and I to open our spiritual wallet and to invest into others? Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. We realize that this is a lot like taking gas out of your own tank and putting it in someone else's. It costs. There is a transfer of energy that happens when this ministry happens in the church. That's why Christians need to be daily fueled by the energy and the truth of the Word and person of God. Not only so that we can stand firm and know what is right that gives us the vision for moving forward, but so that others can stand firm and see that truth as well. Philippians 4.8, we all need to set our eyes on those things which are true and honorable, that are right and pure and lovely, of good report, that are commendable, the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. What did Paul say? Dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
These are carefully chosen words, and we see that they are all intertwined throughout the Scriptures. When we set our minds on truth, that which is excellent, godly, of good report, lovely, etc., when we dwell on these things, specifically the Spirit of God of peace comes into our lives. Do you and I know the truth well enough to come alongside a brother and sister and speak those energy-giving words into them? Do we know how to serve a brother and sister well enough in such a way that it transfers spiritual power from us to them? You've heard me mention it before, one of the most striking of the um, accounts in the New Testament when Jesus was alive is when the friends brought their lame friend to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him in the house, so they took him on the roof and pulled the roof apart and dropped him in. And Jesus said, because of the faith of your friends, I will heal you. Are we that kind of friend? This is an amazing thing. This is how we encourage the faint-hearted. And I love Paul's points in the verse I just read. He said, those things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things and the God of peace will come to you. Are we just speaking truth or can we say the things that you have watched me do, the things that I have said, the things you have heard, that you have seen give me spiritual power, Go and do the same things, and the same spiritual power will come to you. This is how we encourage the faint-hearted. Follow me as I follow Christ, and together the God of peace will be with us. Group number three, the weak. Paul says, help the weak, those who are spiritually weak. Not only do they not have the vision for spiritual progress, they lack the strength as well. Similarly related to what we just talked about. Or perhaps they have some vision, but they've run out of energy. They know what's right. They want to do what's right. They just lack the spiritual muscle to follow through. Again, my church family, do you and I know how to come alongside a, a brother or sister in Christ who is weak in, the spiritual, in their spiritual strength? And do we know how to strengthen them? I fear that... Part of the problem in the church at large is that too many of us hardly know what to do. We want to help. We do feel badly, but we don't know what to do and to, and to say. And this reminds us that we need to learn how to equip one another in this area of spiritual strength. We have a couple people in church right now who are looking into providing a, a CPR class for those in the church family who are interested. That's exactly what we need in the spiritual realm to learn how to give life-saving measures to each other, not just the lost, but to the saved, the saints of God, life-saving measures. Not a forgiveness of sin, but an abundance of joy type of life-saving measures. An increasing in love and an increasing in hope and an increasing of faith type of strengthening to each other. 
We must be in the equipping and strengthening business. That's why Paul says here, help the weak. We all realize that we need workout partners in the faith. And so it's a good time for us to ask ourselves, am I one of those workout partners? Do I have partners? Am I a partner to others? That's why I love our small groups. That's a workout group right there. We get together and we talk about living out our Christian life. Not the Christian life, but our Christian life. It's because we recognize that the Christian life isn't something out there. It is something in here. The out there is nothing more than quote-unquote religion. The in here is relationship, divine relationship, spiritual relationship with one another, eternal relationship. It is the truest friendship. And Paul says, help the weak. That is how we develop relationship, one of the ways. May I ask again, why do we run from the weak? It's the same answer as before. It's because it's natural. Why would we run to the weak? Because it is spiritual. It's our calling. This is what God has called us to, and what He calls us to, we know that He equips us for. In the practical world, as I study this, I, my mind went to Paul Hayes. It's why he runs into the fire, like the Arab. It's why he would help take a nuclear submarine straight into battle. It's their calling. That's what they do. And this is what Christians do. We must be in the equipping and strengthening and life-saving business. Group number four. This was a very interesting group. This is everyone. Paul says, be patient with everyone. So the question is, who's the everyone group? Well, obviously, it's all those who require patience. We are clearly looking at the slow and bothersome group. Everyone. I'm positive. Paul put this group in here, the everyone group, just for those who were working their way through his words and aced group one and aced group two and aced group three and thought they would ace the whole spiritual test. Paul says, no, you're just the bothersome group, the slow group that we all need to be patient with. This is everyone. We're all lumped in. We all have our rough edges, our bothersome and irritating and even sinful qualities and behaviors that push the patience of the saints around us. Which, by the way, we should be letting Christ chip off and sand off those sharp, rough edges of our personality, etc., so that we can be more like Christ. But even if these issues aren't a moral issue, there are always going to be people and we are one of them who just don't learn and move fast enough in our opinion. Paul says, be patient with everyone. This is a part of living in peace together. The Greek word for patient means to be long-spirited, long-suffering, to patiently endure. It literally means to willingly receive the nuisance and pain of another person for a long time. Are you and I known as being a patient person? Do we have a long-suffering timer? 
a long fuse which has no dynamite at the end anyway. We ought to. Patience is perfectly exemplified by Jesus Christ. Of all people, he suffered immeasurably for years for our benefit. And of course, in this verse, Paul had to tag the word everyone on the end of the phrase. I'll be honest with you, I am incredibly patient with almost everyone in this entire world. It's the two or three in my life, right? We don't know what we're talking about. Paul says, them too. You must be patient. Patience is a godly virtue. We are called to it to promote peace. So much could be said on each of these points, but let's keep moving. Verse 15. Just when we thought Paul had raised the bar high enough, he now hits the all or none section. Verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Again, we, we have to see this in the context of the prior verse. What do people usually do when they're unruly, when they're depressed, when they're weak, when they're irritating? They offend us. When they're at their lowest point, they start saying and doing things they shouldn't, maybe even saying and doing things that they, they didn't intend to do. They're weak, they're frustrated, and what is our natural response? Dish it back. Get even. Respond in kind. Or if you're Carmen, you get ahead. As an inside joke, Carmen and us one. But what's the spiritual response? Verse 15. Don't repay evil for evil. And the verse could have left it at that. Just don't hit back. But God knows the heart of people. As the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to add more to this phrase. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That takes supernatural, super spiritual, miracle level energy to not repay evil for evil, but instead to always seek after good for one another and for all people. It's the always and the all that really pin us down. It's one thing to say, fine, I won't send that bitter email that I've typed up. It says, God, as though God were responding good, now take the second step and go do, go do good for that person. So many of these truths are echoed in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 to 7. Let me read just a few of these verses. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38, says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That is not the natural response. That's the spiritual response. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him. That's the running the other direction. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward, reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Of course, that was a low blow back in their day. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, that is the ungodly, do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I don't care what definition you put on the word perfect. Oh, that just means mature, etc. Okay, fine. You just you got to be as mature as God. It raises the bar as far as it can possibly go. Therefore, you are to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul isn't teaching anything in our text today that wasn't already preached by Christ. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Chapter 6, verse 14, If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. These are all pictures of what a Christian must look like. Let's move on in our text, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul continues the all or none section. Why rejoice when trials hit? Why pray when life's going so bad you start to wonder if God's paying attention anyway? Why give thanks when you have just suffered loss? Because this is God's will for you. That's such a powerful, life-guiding truth. Nothing happens to the child of God that is outside the will of God. And specifically, the will of God is that we would rejoice and pray and give thanks always. Unshakable joyfulness constant communion with God and unceasing thanksgiving are three powerful, beautiful, divine components of God's will for those who are in Christ Jesus and have Christ in them. These all-the-time Christian attitudes are not natural. We know this. They are spiritual. They are God's will for those who are filled with the Spirit of God. God gives us not only the reason, but the ability to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. Stop and think about it, and you'll realize that only Christians can do all three of these things all the time. That's because no human has the strength within themselves to honor this simple verse. But because we are empowered by the Spirit of God Himself, we can do all these things all the time. Not that we will, but the power, the desire, the truth, the motivation, the inspiration is all there for us. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Now, this is, this is very obvious. If we quench the Spirit and His divine encouragement and strength in us through Christ, 
If we quench that, how then in the world are we going to obey all the verses prior right here? And let alone do it with all people, all the time. If we throw water on the fire of the Holy Spirit, as it then said, by accommodating hidden sin in our lives and, and persistent disobedience to the Word of God, if we entertain unruliness, then how are we going to be peacemakers when everything in our flesh wants to fight and argue and defend back? How are we going to admonish and encourage and help those who are suffering if the Spirit, if spirit isn't already putting that strength and demonstrating that strength through us in the first place? A weak person can hardly help another weak person. It's why we have the body of Christ. We all have times of weakness, of faint-heartedness, but we also have times of strength, and that's when the body serves one another. Are we so bold as to think we can accomplish the work of God apart from the strength of God? Paul said in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Saved by grace, sanctified in serving in our own strength? Paul says that is pure foolishness. That self-centered, self-inflated self-dependence is spiritual insanity. That's running into a fire that we are sure to get burned by. It's running and charging into a battle we are sure to lose. And so Paul says, in light of these commands, make sure you do not quench the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, the truth of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the light of the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit. Whatever you do, do not inhibit what He is willing and ready to do in you. This is why we must be sanctified. As we studied in depth two weeks ago at the start of chapter 4. Verse 20 continues. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Now, we won't get into a lengthy discussion on this. That's not the goal of today's, today's study. We understand that prophecy, the speaking of prophetic words, is simply the word of God given to man and spoken by one man to another person particularly truths that perfectly warn and guide us into the future of God's will. In its simplest sense, Paul says, don't despise the truth of God that has been revealed to man regarding how we should live particularly into the future. We recognize a lot of what Paul is saying in this book is prophetic utterances. He has just given them more than anyone else in the current world probably knows about the second coming of Christ. Prophetic utterances. If you put yourselves in the position of the Jews, they were hearing a lot of prophetic utterances that you and I take for granted today. We've heard them so many times. But for these Jews, much of what was being said by the apostles was prophetically spoken. And whether the apostles or the gift of the Spirit enabled others to continue and for how long, we talk about that another day. 
But the bottom line is, these believers were hearing a lot of New Testament, Holy Spirit-given truth that was very foreign to them. And Paul said, do not despise these truths. Verse 21, but examine everything carefully. He is speaking of the teachings they were hearing. The prophetic utterances, he says, test them, examine them, all of them, carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. The New Testament church might very well have been young at this point, but the concept of false teaching was as old as the Red Sea. Satan was no rookie at deception. Remember the Garden of Eden. And here in Thessalonica, and in all of the places where the church had blossomed and the gospel of Jesus Christ as Messiah was being proclaimed, we find that corrupt religious ideas were already creeping into the church. And they were coming often through the teachers. And they were being claimed as prophetic utterances. Paul says, don't write off every new thing you hear. God is speaking truth. He said, but everything you hear, you must examine. And not only examine, but examine carefully. Paul's point was simple. Know the truth based on the revealed Word of God, the spoken Word of God. Know the truth, and when you find it, grab on tightly with both hands. And not only grab on tightly with both hands because it is good, but let go and abstain from, totally walk away from everything else you hear. That everything else is so important for the church to remember because a lot of the everything else's have an essence of wisdom to them. They are so mixed with truth. You know this. Paul says, you examine carefully if it is not good, and this is the perfect sense of good. If it is not holy, run from it. Abstain. It's not only not truth, it is a form of evil. Paul understood the battle, the risks, the dangers, and the importance of examining the truth carefully. I'm so grateful that this church family demands that the pastors examine the truth carefully. There are a lot of great ideas out there, a lot of methods, etc., but there is only one thing that passes the test of all examination. And what is it? The Word of God. You insist that I and Mark and every Sunday school teacher, every Bible study leader, each other who claim to be children of God insist that we speak the Word of God. We all have to be in the business of examining truth like the Bereans, right? Paul in his last few moments of writing, as he's watching his children leave for summer camp, says, don't forget to examine everything you hear. When you spot the truth of the word, don't ever let it go. Examine these truths because your spiritual lives depend upon them. Your eternal lives depend upon them. Let's wrap up with Paul's closing prayer. Verse 23. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is echoing the amazing last verse in chapter 3. Without blame, wholly without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. So what is the big picture summary? What is the big picture goal of verse 23? Complete sanctification. Holiness in every area of our lives. And who is it that can cause that to happen? Not the pastor. Not your church family. Not a good self-help book. It takes God himself. Paul is underlining. He's putting the bold in here. God sanctifies you entirely. It is God who performs this miracle of sanctification, holiness, holiness of behavior. We understand that we are holy in Christ as Christians, but there's this now time, the behavior of our life that is still so influenced by the flesh that also needs holiness. And Paul reminds us, It takes God himself to cause that to happen in you. When we trust and obey, God does what only God can do. It's ridiculous to think that we could sanctify ourselves entirely. Only God can preserve our entire being so that we are what? What is the benchmark? What is the the test at the end? You just need to be blameless before Christ when you stand before Him, when He returns. That is the goal of sanctification. If any of us feels we are doing pretty good right now, we need to come back to entire sanctification. Blamelessness, holiness in the presence of Christ. We would do well to search the Scriptures and to do all we can to understand what that moment of standing before the righteousness of Christ will feel like upon ourselves. Of course, in that moment, we will rejoice like we have never rejoiced before at the righteousness of Christ in us. We will see sin for what it is, and we will see righteousness for what it is. Let us not wait, though, until the return to pursue and experience and cherish that righteousness There is an entire sanctification that God wants to do today in each of us. The pursuit of the holiness of Christ now. It's in this verse 24 that we see that God not only can do this, we see in 24 one of the greatest hope-giving, strength-infusing promises of God He will do it. That's an appropriate place for an amen. He will bring it to pass. We see that it is a process. He will bring it to pass. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Love the word also. He doesn't just call. He also performs. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. Paul concludes this letter to this church family in Thessalonica that he loves so dearly in verse 25 to the end. He says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That prayer is just as much for us as when it was written. 2,000 years later, we find that we're still praying. We still have a holy friendship that God has blessed us with that we are so dependent upon. We see that we're still reading the inspired and inerrant, life-changing Word of God. This letter is still being circulated. And finally, we are still fully dependent on the grace of God. My church family, may we increase and be increasing. And as Paul said, not just increase, but abound. Don't just fill up, overflow in love and faith and hope as we daily devote our lives to ourselves to a life of holiness and walking in a manner worthy of God who saved us. Who not only saved us, he called us and he is going to bring to pass that calling into his own glory and his own kingdom. I'm convinced we don't stop often enough and ponder our destiny. Paul reminds us earlier in the chapter, you're not destined for wrath. Praise the Lord. But we are also destined for the glory in the kingdom of God. On this journey, may we be sanctified entirely. We know that Jesus rescued us, and we know he's coming back for us soon. May we be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a glorious calling that you have given us. To sit and ponder what the world has to offer, a little bit of pleasure, satisfaction, and entertainment that often is not even holy. And yet you, Lord, in turn offer us eternal life. You offer us the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the family of God. You offer us true hope, true love, true faith, a faith that so does not rest in our little old selves, but a faith that rests in the creator and sustainer of the universe, who himself is perfect and good, who himself defines love and what is righteous. Lord, we have to walk away and conclude this has been a good deal for us. Lord, help us to treasure the joys of Jesus Christ. 
But as we treasure these joys and, and work through the challenges and the pains of life also, help us to treasure the sanctifying power of the Spirit and Word of God. This calling and this promise to enable us to increase and abound in love. A love for God, a love not only for the church, but for all people. Lord, we want to walk away from this book, this brief study in 1 Thessalonians, knowing that we have more power than when we began the study, that we have more truth than when we began, and that somehow by the miracle working of God, we are experiencing a holiness and a joy and an eagerness for the return of Christ that is greater even than which we were experiencing just a few months ago. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing work that only you do. May we walk in it. May we walk in a manner that is worthy of God himself who saved us and calls us into his own glory and kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.